Welcome to another episode of the Augmented Podcast. Augmented reveals the stories behind the new era of industrial operations, where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. Technology is changing rapidly. What's next in the digital factory? Who's leading the change? What are the key skills to learn? And how to stay up to date on manufacturing and industry 4.0. In episode 34 of the podcast, the topic is factories in space. Our guest is William Bruy, CEO and co-founder at Varda Space Industries. In this conversation, we talk about why build a factory in space, how R&D from the International Space Station facilitated this new development, what space manufacturing will entail in the short term, what the benefits are likely to be in terms of manipulating the terrestrial physical constraints of crystallization and sedimentation. We discuss what the near immediate use cases are, such as better semiconductors and fiber optics, and we cover the futuristic use cases, including 3D printing human organs without scaffolding. Augmented is a podcast for industrial leaders, process engineers, and shop floor operators, hosted by futurist Trun Arne Unheim, presented by Tulip, the frontline operations platform, and associated with MFG Works, the industrial upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast. Will, how are you? Terrific. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm, I'm looking forward to having a conversation about space. Seems like everybody is talking about space these days, but very few of us are up there yet. Uh, yes, agreed. Uh, hopefully someday we'll, uh, we'll be doing this podcast from there. I, I agree. What do you think this fascination, before we get going here, about going into space? I've had it. You obviously never got rid of it. Um, <laughs> what, what's going on there? Yeah, I don't know. It's, it seems like it is in our human DNA to kind of explore and look outside the cave and then look outside to past your island and, and further and further. And so um, uh, there is kind of this DNA is the makes us human to some extent. And uh, so I think it's just, you almost just can't resist it at some point. It's biology. Well, and you got the bug early and then you went to one of my favorite schools, Cornell, and you, you know, you went to systems engineering there and you must've had a lot of fun and, and, you know, basically already educated yourself for, for this race. Did you know back then that uh, space was going to be back? Uh, no, uh, I didn't. Uh, I always knew I uh, was interested in it. It wasn't until sophomore year that I kind of had the courage to commit to it. Uh, but uh, the physics degree I, I figured was broad enough uh, uh, to to pick something down the road. And then when um, uh, you know I went to the career center essentially and, and searched for space, and that's how SpaceX popped up. Uh, so uh, it wasn't exactly um, uh, as aware of the industry to even know if space would be you know quote unquote back or not. So give me a sense of how it is to work at SpaceX. I mean, we all we all sort of think that it's uh, crazy. You're working with you know this crazy entrepreneur. You're doing this rocket science stuff, but it's not NASA. It's like six times as cool as NASA, but with the same, with you know, but with like the startup mentality. How how did you? Uh, what was your experience like? Oh, I, I loved it. Um, it was a great experience. Uh, I really enjoyed it because especially. Being a you know fresh out of school, it was the first time when anyone really trust my engineering ability. Past uh, uh, being like, "Yep, this is you know what you build will fly, and the buck stops with you. And if it doesn't work, then uh, there's no safety nets in your career." So uh, that that entire mentality of ownership was super appealing. So um, 
early days in in uh, SpaceX, did everybody there? Uh, I mean, we we talked a little bit before uh, this uh, recording about how you are so fascinated by this culture inside of these startups, or or any, anybody to to do, to do with space because there's such so much at stake. Was the culture at SpaceX also that where you were sort of thinking like, well, you know, f- failure is not an option, and if we fail, <laughs> it'll be really bad. Like, how how does it feel to work on a team where obviously the consequences are? Well, economically massive, but also potentially in in terms of loss of life and 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 loss of a lot of research hours for sure. How, how, what does that feel like to to work in an organization where the stakes are so high? Yeah, the the stakes are certainly high. Um, it's 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 it goes through phases because there's uh, research and development, and then production, and of course, you know, uh, only during the second half of my tenure there were we really even working on human aspects of of space flight. Uh, but there was kind of you know halfway through the human space flight program, we all kind of look at each other and we're like, oh, this time you know we worked on the cargo dragon first before crew dragon. And we're like, oh, this time around, you know, human lives are really very much on the line, and it does make you think a little bit more about your designs. Um, now there are really clear, uh, top down requirements, uh, at SpaceX that help, um, guide those decisions. And so the key one being, uh, fault tolerance, uh, and for the cargo vehicle, uh, you only needed to be one fault tolerant. So any one thing in the, in the vehicle can go wrong and the mission is still a success is what that tolerance means. And even that is kind of hard to design to, if you imagine trying to build something and have anyone pick uh, one piece and say, Hey, what happens if that breaks? Will it still succeed? Uh, so that is already a challenge to design. And then adding two fault tolerance where, Hey, I can pick any two things at random in a malicious way uh, to um, have uh, you know, uh, someone die on this space mission um, is is an even more complex design. It's you know it's exponential as you increase the number of faults that you can uh, tolerate. And so the the way that you sleep at night is knowing that okay, we are very clear. Everyone knows uh, that uh, any two things can break, and God forbid three break. And uh, you know that's kind of part of the deal at that point. Wow. So you were part of the of the mission's control responsible for the the Dragon spacecraft. You've also worked on the flight video system. Can I ask you if uh, will we ever see the effects of uh, you know space uh, video in uh, in our uh, Zoom and, and other calls? Are we going to get some space quality here soon? <laughs> oh, that's all. Uh, you know what's funny is uh, the quality of our video right now. I am ashamed to say is probably better than the video system I designed at SpaceX. So um, uh, n- nothing. The, I guess uh, the quality was slightly lower for the one I designed, but it's a, certainly more rugged. Uh, I, I don't know if the laptop would survive the vibe levels on the way up. But yeah, every every uh, flight video that you've seen from SpaceX's um, Falcon 9 rocket, like the landing on the barge or anything, any video from the uh, from flight is uh, was was one of my babies there. I want to bring up one more thing before we get to to Varda and the exciting things you're up to now. You've also had some time in the capital environment. You, you've been, you know, in an angel syndicate and uh, you know been investing, and you've also worked before that in global equities with with Bank of America. You had this dual interest in space and economy that could actually be pretty useful because I, I've been reading some reports on the future of space and at least these early reports by NASA were like, will these VCs ever understand the potential that we have laid up here? You know, throughout our 
20, 30 years of, of R&D in space. So that is the big question. But you went ahead and, and invested in some other companies, I think, right? And you were in, in, into finance just for, for pure finance. Yeah, the I did. The uh, The philosophy there was uh, learning by doing in, in an extent. And um, I don't know if this is a great methodology because I haven't tried a ton, but uh, so far, it's kind of been working, I think, for me, which is learn the very base fundamentals of something first, and then also learn the highest level of abstraction that exists. And uh, sometimes you can interpolate the two. So, uh, you know, for for undergrad, I did physics as low level and fundamentals you can get in engineering. And then I did systems engineering in grad school, which is kind of the highest level of abstraction. Uh, and this, I took a similar approach uh, intentionally in the learning business side of things as well, uh, between uh, working at Bank of America, which is a you know large, inve- I was on the investment banking side, you kind of get to see uh, large companies from the top down, uh, but then also starting um, the small angel syndicate that's invested in um, geez, now 14 or 15 companies, uh, and to also see startups when, you know, the the catchphrase of, of our fund, uh, it, it's called also capital. The catchphrase is we invest in the people stage. And it's when, you know, you, you, there is barely an idea and mostly just a human. And so uh, that's kind of the bottom up view as well and try and interpolate in between. That's cool. And then you are a pilot. I think that sort of completes the loop here in your prep for for the sort of uh, fairly exotic and kind of crazy startup that you have just founded because you maintain this small aircraft. And I looked at it on uh, on the internet, the Cozy MK4 experimental aircraft. That doesn't sound necessarily good, <laughs> experimental <laughs> aircraft. I mean, it has a ring to it, but... Uh, you know, how do your significant others feel about all this? Yeah, the, the, it is, I always kid around. Or your investors. (laughs) Yeah, I I kid around that the experiment is if we're going to live or not. No, Uh, but the, 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 there's several reasons why I like flying that aircraft. One is it's the fastest um, four seater that I can afford. Uh, And and then also the fact that it's experimental, uh, I, bought it when I was moving into uh, learn more about business and into the finance world. And um, I didn't want anyone to say that I had, uh, could no longer do engineering. So if I maintain and, uh, and um, uh, this aircraft uh, and put my life on the line, then I, I feel like no one can question my engineering uh, ability, or at least that I'm still paying attention to uh, some of those things. My significant other, uh, <laughs> she um, she certainly had a few questions because there are placards when you get into the plane that say, you know, this is not FAA rated. Uh, and um, uh, I think she got over it quickly. We uh, spent a lot of, of time flying around the country together. So uh, I think uh, from a risk reward perspective, um, at least our uh, our values lined up a little bit there. Wow, that's that's exciting. Is it? Is it? So it's two hundred and fifty some miles per hour. Is it fast enough that you can uh, just uh, zoom to Lake Tahoe for an afternoon? <laughs> Uh, it is. It's funny you actually mentioned that. Um, so it's actually only 200 miles an hour, uh, but unless we get a good jet stream situation going. But yeah, uh, the flight to Tahoe from LA is uh, about an hour and 15 minutes, um, hour and a half. Uh, and uh, but yeah, we'll that's do an what LA we can commute. Getaway there. That's an LA <laughs> commute right there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 So, so Will, factories in space. Let's mm-hmm. let's start with it. You know, uh, why build factories in space? I, I have my own explanation. You know, which is, goes back to sort of thinking about, uh, well, 
I mean, I, I understand if we're going to be serious about space factories as a serious part of society. Uh, can you line that argument up for me, uh, you know, from the basics, basically? <clears throat> you know, wh- why start with factories and why are we there now? Yeah, happy to. The, uh, the fundamental aspect of my, there's a lot of uh, aspects to engineering that space has to offer in product development. Uh, the one that we're targeting specifically is microgravity. And there are, so if, from an engineering perspective, there are four fundamental forces of physics that drive all of engineering. Uh, so strong force, we, uh, strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force, electromagnetism, and gravity. And uh, everything you see in the world is built atop those four. So if we can literally turn off 25% of that physics uh, for the engineer anyway, uh, in, that, in that process environment, uh, there's a, uh, a huge amount of innovation that can be built atop of that. So that's, the, that's really the core fundamental aspect. Um, and then uh, there, you know, we can talk about some of the specific chemistry that comes out of that. Uh, and then you also mentioned... Um, I'm sorry. Was it the the economic aspect or? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I I'm thinking about the broader side, which is I understand that's not where Varda is going sort of initially, but ju- just the point that you know if you're going to sustain human missions eventually, mm. factories are a big part of it. I know for you, and we'll get to this. You know, you're more short term concerned, and I think that's important because so many times it seems like very smart people can get lost in very long-term arguments and, uh, you know, you may or may not get them funded and, you know, and they certainly do have long time cycles, but, but definitely like in a long-term perspective, obviously, if we're going to have human infrastructure in place, uh, then factories are part of that. And even if we're going to start with the, you know, sublunar, you know, activity of any sort of sort, I understand production of some mm-hmm. sort is f- fundamental, like clearly, you know, oxygen, you know, you need to supply some of that stuff and you need to communicate. <laughs> those those are pretty basic, but yeah. right up there with oxygen and communication right after that, I guess, shows the economic side, you know, sh- starts showing up because you, you know, if you, if no one wants to pay for it, if you can just do a one-off, and I think that was the problem, uh, pardon for simplifying 30 years of space, but, you know, it's like a one-off uh, poof, you know, a billion dollars up in smoke or 10. That's not sustainable, right? So you're talking about a whole other logic. Um, yeah. But but I wanted to, I guess, take that argument uh, a little bit down. So, you know, it can be like really big here, but the International Space Station in some way forms the backbone of your company. Explain what they did there over 20 years. What sort of foundation has been laid there? What is it that they have discovered that suddenly make you, you know, audacious but not viewed as crazy and actually being able to grab some VC money for, for, for this concept? The the not crazy aspect is that a lot of our R and D has already been done for us by the ISS, as you just mentioned. So, uh, lots of the grants uh, or the rationale for grants for funding for research experiments on the ISS uh, come with the rationale of oh, when launch costs drop someday, uh, this might be a, a unit or an economical thing to manufacture in space, and so. Uh, we basically look through all of that research and we pick out the ones that we think have the highest margins and the best unit economics. And that kind of ties back to the first part of your question nicely, which was, okay, you know, sometimes we get lost in the long term um, and, and, uh, you know, we're focused, focused on the short term, but it, it is kind of this, there is actually kind of a 
tenuous aspect that I that I see uh, in, in two ways. You, you mentioned um, simplifying thirty years of space into oh, let's prove that we can do it, and, and you're not wrong for sure. Uh, that that's true for the Apollo program. You know, we haven't returned to the moon in thirty years or thirty. I wish um, we you know reusable rockets are a similar story. Uh, we kind of see uh, us ourselves as. Um, as the elasticity in the market that will drive the demand to rationalize that one-off that you that you speak of, uh, if if we don't de- drive demand uh, for space and take advantage of the lower cost access to space, then that lower cost will uh, go by the wayside. And so, in the near term, uh, we're basically looking at the research that's been done on the ISS and figuring out how we can launch uh, and recover. Uh, products that have already been um, flushed out and create an economy there. And then, at, and like you said, though, in the long term, uh, with a multiplanetary species, it's hard to imagine a war. Um, I would almost said world, but I guess uh, imagine, uh, imagine a solar system where we have folks both on Mars and Earth, but for some reason, no manufacturing facilities in between. Uh, so it's kind of like uh, the way I kind of imagine it is. Um, uh, those one-off efforts, if you will, uh, create this vacuum behind it, uh, proving the potential. And uh, if if nothing fills that void, then that one-off uh, will either collapse or, or be be in vain, essentially. So, uh, in near term, uh, we want to take advantage of the access of or the progress that uh, has been made in accessing space. And in the long term, we kind of want to be always filling that uh, that gap and serving the um, the needs that is are being developed right in front of us, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I understand that. And let's go to some of the specific uh, uh, findings and that, that you're sort of building on and the use cases. But just right before that, I wanted to ask you, and again, this is going to be a pretty naive question, but the space shuttle program, had had its issues, but at least it had the word shuttle in it, and it had the notion that you could send it up and take some part of it down. Now, I was always kind of disappointed as a kid that the part that they discarded was so much bigger than the part that they left, you know, to, to return to Earth. It's sort of, even as a kid, I, I was thinking to myself, that's kind of a, a waste. Do you think that the whole concept of how space was approached in terms of business models, because I guess that's what we're talking about here, you know, of course, was things possible? Were they possible or not possible? I understand a lot has to do with improvements in rocket fuel, a, b- a bunch of different things, and engineering has Im- improved in 30, 40 years. But do you think the concept now, the concepts that are developing just are more realistic and are you know, just the fact that you're already starting to think about the return before you have sent something <laughs> up there—that's a good thing, right? Yeah, your uh, your twelve-year-old uh, self, child self, was was spot on for sure. Uh, the shuttle was originally intended to be much more reusable than it ended up being, and compromises were made. The and 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 falling into salt water certainly didn't help the recovery process. The fundamental difference between what is available to us now and what was available in the shuttle is the reusable boost stage that um, uh, that has now been developed. So, for example, SpaceX's reusable Falcon 9 uh, doesn't just fall at, uh, back and uh, drag and survive would be the kind of equivalent of the shuttle that you, that you just mentioned. So now that we can put things in space without the waste that you imply, is really the big economic driver that created the entire kind of space startup ecosystem that you see today. 
Yeah. All right. So let's move into the meat of this. I mean, some of this is like really hard science and I'm not going to perhaps be the, uh, the best uh, prober, you know, in, in these uh, use cases. But let's, let's start with some of the, the, the basics of these experiments. So you, you said that there are a, a bunch of, you told me earlier, you know, some, some of these use cases. Um, first of all, let's, let's talk about what microgravity does to a bunch of sort of like chemical processes that are actually pretty useful in, in existing manufacturing uh, or, or that are problems in existing manufacturing. And let's move, move from there into some of the, I guess, use cases that, you, that the ISS were experimenting on and that you are sort of considering between and, and, and that could be future use cases in the next sort of five, five even just the next five years. The most, there's a fundamental uh, set of physical mechanisms that uh, we can take advantage of right off the bat that have been developed in the uh, on the International Space Station. So yeah, let me let me dive into some specifics. Uh, first, I'll, I'll do one that uh, is easy for anyone to understand, and uh, then we can dive into the a little bit of the chemistry. And uh, you can pull me back out if I get too uh, too technical. Uh, but the the easy one to kind of visualize. Um, and this is this is surely f- uh, far down the road, you know, five ten years. Um, but it, it would be a human organ uh, printing. So, for example, when we three D print something on uh, on Earth, we need to use scaffolding in order to support uh, the structure which we're printing along the way. And in in um, but you can't really do that if you want to print uh, something like a human organ that uh, you know will not operate if it has scaffolding inside of a, a, a ventricular valve or something like that. So. Uh, the, uh, so, so we're able to 3d print things without scaffolding. Uh, the killer app there, of course, is, is human organs way down the road. Uh, but in, in the near term, uh, let me talk a little bit about the chemistry that's been developed on the international space station that allows us to create new materials. Uh, so for example, research has been done to show if we take up semiconductors, uh, so talking diodes and amplifiers that might be, um, uh, defective or have defects, uh, and, and I'm not talking about defects such that they won't work, but I'm talking about defects that lower performance. And we were to anneal them, meaning heat them in orbit. Uh, oftentimes those defects will disappear. And so the, we can now create uh, more semi or, or uh, higher performing semiconductors uh, on a, uh, in a more deterministic fashion than than on Earth. Uh, another example would be growth of crystals. And uh, so I'm not talking about like, uh, um, you know, magic rocks or anything like that. But I mean, crystalline structures in chemistry are, um, are often determined by how uh, molecules move around um, in a solution. And so uh, in, in microgravity, we can avoid things like sedimentation. So if you have a mixture of something and you want uh, that mixture to stay uniformly distributed during any chemical process, then doing it on Earth might be more difficult because if one of the things in that mixture or that solution is heavier, it'll slowly sediment to the bottom, like you know uh, your vinegar dressing uh, in the or balsamic dressing in the refrigerator. Um, but if you were to mix it in orbit and the then the heavier and the lighter um components of that solution uh stay homogeneously mixed and so now during the chemical reaction that takes place uh we have better control over it and so uh from a general sense we have better control over chemical reactions 
and that can lead to higher performing materials across the board. So some things that have been shown on the uh, International Space Station would be um, uh, developing crystals for pharmaceutical use cases. Uh, so there's a kind of four different applications in the pharma world. Um, we can also reduce the amount of crystals being formed if, uh, and done in microgravity. So we could use that concept in the world of fiber optics, being able to create glass that is more efficient such that uh, you can shine more light farther through fiber optics, so making the internet more efficient. Uh, so these are kind of the, how chemistry leads up to the application and how, uh, by turning off gravity, we have more control over that chemistry. That, that's exciting. So the, the first use case, I mean, uh, you know, you, you, you talked about, uh, you know, printing organs. So that's, that's easily visually understandable. And, you know, you could sort of imagine at least why it's useful. Um, and then the second one where you're talking about the chemistry here, you're talking about two things. So one was sort of the chemical process of sedimentation, sort of, uh, right, the, 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 mm -hmm. the, the way that elements naturally will, will segment. And then you were talking about crystallization. Uh, which is useful in a, in a bunch of industrial processes, including in studying proteins, right? So uh, other, other things that are becoming really, really hot here on Earth, you know, trying to understand protein structures seems to be pretty useful as of late. Um, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, the, the key there is uh, there, there, it, it's a wide array of applications, but the one you mentioned specifically is if we want to better understand a protein, uh, they're very complex molecules. And so one method that exists is if you can crystallize that protein, meaning that you create a more regular structure out of it, you can then shine an x-ray through it and look at a diffraction pattern that explains what the atomic structure is of that protein. So if proteins are very important because they are often the um, interface between a pharmaceutical drug and the human body. And so understanding those are, are crucial. And if we can crystallize them, we understand them better and we can crystallize them better in space, meaning that we can have higher resolution and better understand those proteins that go into the human body. Um, what about a use case like photovoltaic? So, I mean, solar cells would seem to be pretty useful uh, as an energy source, but, uh, you know, and there's a lot of sun out there in, in, in space, presumably, and certainly if you could bring it back and make higher efficiencies, is that also, uh, can that also make use of some of these principles? Absolutely. There are, uh, I guess, really, uh, to take to take that concept a step further, the, the way we think about Varda's business model, in a way, is if we take the entire global set of uh, manufacturing processes in every supply chain. And we, we basically just apply a filter and we say, okay, of every process that exists on earth, uh, let's first filter for a uh, dollar per kilogram. Uh, can we add value to your process in a way that meets a dollar per kilogram threshold? If so, great. Next filter. Uh, can we engineer a that process to be executed in space? Okay, eliminate some other ones for now. Uh, and then finally, can we... Uh, the next filter is, can we integrate into that supply chain? So more of a business development exercise. If so, uh, great, you are now eligible as a, as a Varda product. Uh, and we basically just start with the highest margin of that remaining list and move back and move down from there. And what's neat is as our cost of goods drop, as the, um, as the space economy becomes more commoditized and we can purchase more things off the shelf and those costs of goods drop, the number of products that get through that filter, especially from a dollar per kilogram perspective, just increases more and more. And so uh, kind of the thesis, you know, there's a complex thesis of Varda, but one of them is that uh, there are enough 
products in that uh, resulting filter now to get started and uh, be a, um, a large company. And um, it's only growing from there. So if you would take me inside of the boardroom of one of your first VC meetings when you were trying to explain this, because I, I actually don't have the data of this, but I, last night in prepping for this, I read one of NASA's report called uh, reports called Economic Development of Low Earth Orbit. And one of their big points was, you know, we're struggling with these VCs because... Uh, you know, we have built all this stuff at the ISS, uh, but it's hard for them to kind of envision uh, why uh, a bunch of startups with, with one, understand this, and two, all these restrictions, which are pretty real, uh, which I guess goes a long way to explain why you, in the end, have chosen not to use the ISS as your lab. Because, you know, if you imagine all these astronauts up there, uh, actually, there are not that many, right? And they're really busy because, you know, every use case, like imagine they have to move things from A to B and then for like some completely different customer, they're moving something from C to, uh, you know, D and that's like, they're like far in between. I could just imagine logistically that humans working a lab on the ISS, even though it's the only thing we have, could become quite cumbersome. So I'm just curious, is that sort of your pitch? You're like, we're going to do all of that, but we're not going to depend on this physical vessel. Wow, you I wish you I, you did a better job explaining it just now than than I did in the boardroom or in the in the pitch room. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'll elaborate now with an extra seven uh, months of of thinking about this stuff. Uh, but yeah, it's basically exactly what you said. Um, uh, I, so going back to your original point that the um, that that report, which I think I actually read as well, uh, do VCs they can't visualize what the potential is? I actually think it's a little bit of the conventional wisdom might be wrong there. I think. I think VCs can visualize the future, and in, and in some extent, that's what they're best at. Um, I think where uh, the why the timing is right now for Varda as opposed to before is because uh, being able to explain the unit economics and costs involved, which were much higher a decade ago, and so it was it was more an exercise of hey, we can do this economically and we can get through the regulatory hurdles then the hey can you imagine what it'd be like to have an industrial park in orbit that part was easy we got through that in the first two a couple couple of minutes um uh so the the goal of varda is to have the first industrial park off of earth and how do we do that uh we take advantage of those those lower costs and and in the exact methodology that you that you mentioned it would you know if you're designing an assembly line and you need it to be as cost effective as possible putting a a billion dollar piece of machinery with manual labor right in the middle uh is uh less design you know being the iss and the astronauts on there is uh a not the uh, the most prudent path that I would take. Uh, so yes, uh, we we would like a platform that is completely commercially independent uh, that can certainly learn from uh, the work that's been done on the ISS. It's 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 built to be a research platform and um, but not uh, a production platform. You you did uh, give yourself. Uh, a couple of other problems, though, right? And I know you just s signed some contracts recently here to solve the problem of getting uh, stuff shipped up there. But but even just how the factory of yours going to operate up there without humans? There's some pretty serious robotic technology needed. I mean, there. What would you say? What what are the chunks of problems that you had to pitch that we, you still kind of had to solve? What are the big challenges for this to actually happen? Like, let's say I'm client a and by the way who would i be would i be like raytheon or would i be nasa like who, who are you who are you pitching this to when you're ready to say 
we've got this going. Or am I Pfizer? Who am I? As far as customers, you, you got it right. It's pharmaceutical companies, uh, telecom companies, uh, semiconductor companies. Uh, we, we do want to be completely in the uh, commercial industry rather than, for example, um, uh, NASA as a research platform. Now, of course, uh, we'll have the capabilities to uh, wrap, to provide research capabilities as well, but that'll be kind of more of a, um, hey, does this uh, round peg that you have in a research format also fit into our, our round hole of a spacecraft. Uh, uh, yeah. So, w- w- but uh, explaining the, the, going back to the engineering challenges you mentioned, uh, yep. ascent is, ascent has been solved for us. Thanks to uh, cheaper launch access to space uh, in orbit uh, f- uh, in-orbit operation has also become more and more of a commodity in the sense that there's more off-the-shelf uh, satellite components, uh, satellite systems as a whole that take care of much of, uh, or at least some of, uh, the the engineering struggles of being in space in, a, in an extreme environment. And we, and then really the last part where our, so our, our, our secret sauce is in the manufacturing aspect and in the reentry aspect. So reentry has not been commoditized yet. And part of Varda's goal is to do that as well on kind of the exact opposite spectrum, if you will, of something like Dragon or Soyuz or, or Dreamliner, um, uh, or, or any other reentry vehicle right now that is, uh, extremely complex, uh, usually human rated, um, infrequent and large. And so we are developing capsules and reentry vehicles that are the opposite of all of those, uh, to plug the gap in the market that exists for things that don't need that level of complexity and don't need that level of cost. And so the major engineering challenges going back to your original question are, are on orbit and operations and system design. So we have all these commoditized parts, uh, at least. So we, we now have, you know, uh, it's kind of similar to maybe back in the day when you would have a custom car rather than an assembly line. And now we can go to, we can go to Costco and look at all of our, uh, all of the space hardware that we can purchase off the shelf, but we still need to integrate it and design the system level. Uh, so system level design, big engineering challenge. We call it the ConOps concept of operations, how you use that system in orbit effectively. Another big engineering challenge. And then, of course, reentry. So those three bulks of problems uh, are the are kind of the secret sauce of, of engineering at Varda. That's exciting. I mean, the reentry problem, I mean, it's easy to visualize something gone wrong in reentry. And, and you know, that, that is the big fear. You can never get back, right? Yeah. Uh, but at least you're not bringing humans, but you are bringing ex- expensive produce that you've just <laughs> created up there. Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it'll certainly be nerve-wracking on our first mission. Uh, I don't think I'll while we're in the blackout period of re-entry you know, around four or five minutes or so uh, I'll probably turn blue. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I, I could imagine that other space companies would be interested in that too because if you're traveling around space and you're, you need to land on various surfaces or, or, or do certain things, I mean, if you guys develop something that's uh, small and uh, you know can fit within bigger, a bigger picture, that, that could be uh, quite useful. I, I guess the whole point is you're, you're, trying to, you're carving out a niche that, uh, that, you, that you see is going to become important. It's, it's, it's super interesting. Where where are you right now? So you've you've got some some money. You're you know have you started working on the really really tough problems? Is that where you are? We we have we've started. I mean we've been working on them now for uh, several months for sure. The 
but yeah, the, the reason why it's so exciting is because exactly what you said is it's useful now, but it's also a foundation that can be generalized for so many other future applications. Um, it, it, the, the key ingredients to most space missions are in-orbit operations, the system itself, and of course, re-entry is always exciting as well. So even though we're using that for our application-specific purposes of our, our industrial park in orbit, uh, those pieces of that puzzle uh, are main ingredients for other puzzles as well, um, and uh, kind of paint the picture of what our solar system could look like uh, in, you know, in our lifetime. Uh, as far as yeah, how, how long we were, we're in Torrance right now, we, uh, we were just raised our Series A. Uh, we're a group of about uh, 30 full-time employees and a handful of interns. And uh, we're cranking on those engineering problems uh, that you mentioned, as well as uh, putting together the customers um, on the, biz, uh, the business development side as well. So w- one of the things that was so fascinating for me is, you know, obviously on this podcast, we have a bunch of manufacturers and manufacturing is by some viewed as like uh, still, unfortunately, as like some s- little bit more of a traditional industry and, and by some as like still, you know, boring and dirty and dangerous and all that stuff. But then obviously robotics has changed all of that, although it hasn't kind of changed the recruitment challenges for this industry. Um, when you're speaking about manufacturing in space, you're playing with some metaphors that are slightly more powerful. Um, to what extent do you think that the production techniques that you're going to be deploying, do they have anything to do with the things that people normally care about on my podcast, things like <laughs> lean production, uh, you know, and, and any of those principles, even some of the digital uh, principles and, and stuff like that? I mean, uh, high high quality, you know, manufacturing does does occur. For example, in my state, in Massachusetts, and you know, we're producing all of the stuff that you want to produce in space is being produced today. Um, is that the kind of people you're recruiting, by the way, or are you looking at completely different sets of expertise to to solve these challenges in a very different way? The well, let me pander to your audience for a second. This is actually completely true: is that the manufacturing and the production side does not get as much love as it should. Uh, and what I mean by that is, so you know, as a as a um, uh, as an engineer in school, I was, uh, uh, you know, brainwashed is a strong word, but, or more, you know, fell in love with the allure of designing of spacecraft. And you always kind of want to be the design engineer. But when I got to SpaceX, I realized, you know, the mission of designing a rocket or putting a human into orbit, uh, we, we did that, you know, uh, in the 60s. And so uh, the, the real goal is, okay, how do you do that at a cost in a cost-efficient way over and over again without failing. Like the, it's truly a manufacturing problem, and it's a production problem, and it's a little bit of a shame in the sense that uh, because of you know global economics as well as um, pop culture has kind of led uh, a lot of the best and brightest that are coming out of university to uh, be attracted more to the design side when really uh, the more enabling aspect occurs on the manufacturing side. And so at, at Varda, that's certainly, that's certainly true now, um, being a little bit of a hypocrite in the sense that, of course, we got to design the thing we're going to fly before we can manufacture it. But uh, we, ser- we bring on manufacturing talent way earlier than I think most firms do. And for, you know, it's uh, manufacturing engineers, uh, I've heard, not, not to stereotype, but I've heard them complain about my designs for sure. Hey, why wasn't I in the uh, part of the design cycle? And, and they're right. Um, and so uh, having that kind of long-term vision of what we want to do 
is is crucial to get the manufacturing side up and running. So uh, as far as the concepts you mentioned that terrestrial manufacturing uh, and terrestrial manufacturing engineers uh, work on every day, uh, that's the same here at Varda, not just because we're manufacturing um, our space systems, but uh, also because we're manufacturing on on orbit. So uh, a lot of the key um, key concepts you brought up are crucial in in two ways, really. You know, almost squared at Varda in the sense that we have to do that in an autonomous way on orbit. Um, we also have to do it. Uh, we have to build the machine, and we also have to build the machine that builds the machine. And and both of those are drawing from all of those uh, kind of lean manufacturing aspects uh, that you mentioned. Um, as far as digitization, that's uh, a very interesting one, uh, since it's we don't have the option of putting humans in orbit. Uh, we're simply just not uh, there yet. And so, um, you know, I, I could imagine, and I'm, and I'm, uh, and I'm certainly uh, stepping over the line here a bit, but I can imagine some manufacturing engineers saying, hey, I don't know if this aspect of digitization or this specific, specific part is um, crucial uh, for meeting our KPIs or our goals here on Earth. Uh, we don't have the luxury of not digitizing. <laughs> so we are very much forced down that path uh, while manufacturing uh, on orbit. And it's, and it's nice to, we don't have any technical debt there as well. I think a lot of the arguments to some of those changes in the world today are because of the momentum that already is established in a, a perfectly good running company um, that might benefit from iteration more than evolution. Uh, but uh, we, you know, we kind of have a green field that we can build on and, uh, and, and kind of have those from the get-go as part of integrated into our, our processes rather than having to retrofit. Got it. My last question is uh, is going to be to ask you to use a little bit more on the kind of the sci-fi aspects because we've talked about the use cases and clearly, you know, Varda has chosen to sort of de-emphasize some of those much more lofty goals, I guess, that you could bring up, you know, in uh, first instance with with sort of space uh, anything. Uh, but on the other hand, some of the use cases you talked about, like growing organs or building uh, manufacturing organs in space, I mean, that is not the first thing one is going to do. You, you would, even if you went into biomanufacturing, you'd do simpler cells or, or cartilage, or you'd, you'd grow something simpler than, than a full organ. Uh, but even for some of those physics problems uh, that are leading into kind of semiconductors and, and fiber optics, one, you know, give me a sense of the timelines to those more ambitious things, not just the things that would lead to kind of like cheaper, cheaper, better uh, mousetraps, essentially, you know, high quality mousetraps, you know, if you think about fiber optics, but, but the, the leaps and bounds kind of stuff. Um, where are we with that? I mean, has this been a decade where like everything is possible or are we still looking like 25, 30, 40 years ahead before there's going to be any kind of like factory in space with true, you know, hundreds of humans and robots interacting and, you know, sending Star Trek missions to, you know, even within this solar system. What, what are we looking at here? And, or is it even possible to, to foresee what the blockages might be, you know, even just a decade from now? The very okay. So what I think you just accurately described, I'll try and coin a phrase here is like the what I'll call the engineers dilemma, which is basically engineers, both especially in my stage of the career, as well as those that I know, have this cognitive dissonance about what is practical and what that implies the future. So everyone wants to work on something that's going to uh, create a futuristic uh, world for us or solar system for us. And 
be super awesome and, and create this future. And at the same time, we also want to be somewhat pragmatic because engineers have been burned before uh, shooting for something that is too early uh, or, or shoot, you know, too, being too early on something. And, and essentially, a lot of that work gets done in vain. And so it's always about finding this balance. And, and quite frankly, a lot of it is an emotional one for the engineer of, hey, do I want to spend my time on a low probability of a huge success? Or do I want to spend my time on a high probability uh, for incremental success? And that, that threshold is different for everyone on a personal level. Uh, at, and, and I think even society kind of swings back and forth. Uh, like you said, you, you kind of said it yourself there as far as, um, oh, is this the decade of any, anything is possible? Uh, I think one of the, you know, my, one of my favorite parts about Varda is that we're very in touch with the engineering zeitgeist, uh, such that, um, when, when engineers come here, we kind of all almost kind of quote unquote, get it of, okay, what is the most practical or most pragmatic step for the awesome futuristic vision. Uh, so, um, uh, which one should we pick here first? Okay, let's let's start with futuristic vision and, and work backwards. Uh, futuristic vision. There is uh, several different aspects of space that we that we can create an economy for, um, and, and in the science world as well. So, I see I see a human species that you know maybe at the end of our lifetime, maybe right before it, if we're lucky, we'll, we'll have uh, regular transport and be multi-planetary. Uh, what else do we see? We see uh, comm systems necessary to support that. Um, I think going back to your original question, uh, the excitement about space is in the DNA. There will always be people that want to go to the farthest frontier of humanity. Um, and and so that right there is just the value prop of multiplanetary, and then the value prop of everything else is supporting that effort. And so if we have if we have humans multiplanetary, we're going to have the comm systems because they're going to want to call home. Uh, if we have the comm systems, we're going to also need materials. So that means we need to build things. Uh, gravity is. Um, is uh, something that you have to deal with. And so uh, creating things in space often is more economic, especially if you're supporting a uh, space-faring civilization. And so Varda, I want Varda to be the industrialist of that, uh, of that solar system that's, that's, um, that's quite frankly in grasp, and you'll see why. Let's work backwards. So before that, uh, we need to create uh, value in orbit to or in space to show that it's possible uh and so that's kind of the first step for varda let's build something uh you know manufacture something in space bring it back and and sell it and if we can do that for a profit that's huge because i kind of call it like the second half of the rocket revolution first half being uh reusable rockets uh second half is well we got to drive that demand. Right now, most satellites that go up into orbit are telecom or Earth observation, so they're reoccurring revenue for the company, but not reoccurring launch kittens. But at Varda, we have to launch in order to create a profit. So if we get to that, um, you know, quote unquote, zero to one moment where we can spend a million dollars on launch, but make a million and one dollars in revenue, and we're scaling into an Earth-sized market um, that's that's big enough to uh, warrant investment into into um, on that innovation curve. Then we can be the first company to call up our launch provider and be like, "Listen, we want to launch every day. Uh, when can you make that happen? Can we just line up spacecraft at your door?" Um, and, and and then 
then rockets really become like airplanes. And so we're pretty close to that bootstrap moment, I think, where we can have super high cadence access to space. And then once, and that just drives launch costs even lower than they already are now. That just increases the number of products we can make because we're fundamentally changing engineering by turning off gravity. And that increases the number of products. And, uh, you know, to steal a quote from uh, our, our head of thermal is like when we will one one way, there's several ways we'll know we're successful at Varda. One uh, big milestone is we put a human in orbit with a positive ROI. And once you and once you hit that threshold now, instead of just having the threshold of uh, we can put things in space as, as fast as scale as possible because there's such a large market from the wrong, from a materials perspective, now we launch costs are low enough to create even more exotic products where we need a human in the loop up there. And that human in the loop is a you know working class individual who is creating a positive ROI. Then uh, that's another huge milestone. And once that occurs, now you have regular transport with humans. That's when I think space tourism really takes off, uh, rather than um, kind of the roller coaster uh, paradigm that exists right now. And, and from there, it's like, okay, if, if uh, you can kind of see how those two steps, which are very pragmatic in my mind um, and very in reach, uh, lead to that future vision of, um, of a, a regular transportation, regular industry, regular tourism throughout the solar system. Um, I want to end with this. Uh, I mean, I started with this sort of how this conversation just really brings me back to my childhood because I really was very interested in space. One of the reasons I then didn't, you know, to make your choice was that I sort of actually uh, calmed a little uh, on on space for for one specific reason. I sort of started to get involved with the environmental movement and thought to myself, you know, why don't we fix the ecosystem here on Earth instead of going to all these big problems? Um do you think that what's happening now has anything to do with the fact that a lot more people are realizing that we may not actually be able to fix our problems? And, uh, you know, Elon Musk is the, the only one really famous for saying this, like, but we have to have this uh, kind of third way out. Um, but what do you think deep down motivates really creative entrepreneurs, uh, you know, such as yourself, and also the money behind it to support the kind of sort of Carnegie that you want to become out there in space. I mean, is this truly motivated by the expansion of the human mind or is it actually almost the opposite? It's like, whoa, we may not be able to fix this. We need a hatch. We need to get out of here. Uh, absolutely not. Not the latter. It's very much the former. I fundamentally disagree and am a little bit ashamed <clears throat> of the space industry for perpetuating that concept because for a few reasons. One is it's a way easier engineering challenge to create a green economy on Earth than it is to start a civilization on It would seem, planet. right? It would seem. <laughs> right. I think I will, it still is. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, uh, so that is, that's the first part. Um, the second part is like the moment after we're successful in becoming mo- uh, multi-planetary, uh, then the it's the same thing as if you went to a new continent uh it's still one human species so uh whatever we're going to do to earth we're going to do to mars um and after you do mars there's not much in the sense of terrestrial planets nearby so that's a key like gap in the um 
uh, layman's understanding of space is that, okay, so it takes four days in conventional rockets to get to the moon. It takes nine months to get to Mars, and it takes thousands of years to get to the next star um, on conventional rockets. Uh, thousands, hundreds, like, I'll, I'll do the math, but, uh, but like, you're going to not be a human by the time you get there because you will have evolved to something else. And so uh, there, okay, even if you want to play that game where, okay, or, you know, we need to back up to Earth. To Earth. Uh, all right, we have a less, uh, you know, the backup is not as good. It's harder to create and or, or to build. And the second you do, you're still going to have regular transport if you're successful. So what's the difference? It, um, uh, yeah, I, so it's uh, creating a multiplanetary civilization, uh, in my mind, is more about the expansion of, of humanity um, into the cosmos and being, uh, be, in sense, really being human, like you said, expansion of the mind in some sense, but, um, but it is not <laughs> a backup. Wow. Yeah. I, it, it's interesting to, to, to go there just because I, I think it's easy once you enter this like sci-fi world of yours uh, a little bit more and you, you, you know, you get people to then start thinking there. Um, but, but that's what you're saying is the kind of technology jump that we would have to make as a technological civilization to sort of go beyond even like the closest neighboring planets and, and, you know, you know, mine them and some nearby asteroids. The next stage of development is just so unfathomable and uh, it would require a a technological lift that we just, you, you certainly can't gamble on it. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and if I wasn't working on on space stuff, I would be working on uh, environmental stuff. I think. I think. There well, is and some, will uh, I hope that the the two are related? I mean, I think time <laughs> and again, right? Uh, there are some breakthroughs that are made in space that truly makes it into uh, you know you know and into products. Look, this has been a fascinating discussion. You have clearly have a startup that captivates uh, the human mind, uh, even if your point is to get this done you know, uh, in a short time uh, frame and, and, and don't go to even to, to Mars to get it done. Fascinating. Thank you so much for enlightening my uh, listeners with this uh, discussion. Thank and you for having me. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much. I'll uh, hopefully we'll get to speak again with, uh, with a capsule from space in the background instead of some pictures of them. Yep. Next time you got to show up with some props. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Good. You have just listened to episode 34 of the Augmented Podcast with host Ronarne Unheim. The topic was factories in space, and our guest was William Bruy, CEO and co-founder at Varda Space Industries. In this conversation, we talked about why build a factory in space and what space manufacturing will entail in the short term and in the long term. My takeaway is that factories in space are closer than we think, and the reason is that NASA and others have spent 20 years doing R&D at the International Space Station. All that work can now come to fruition, but not within the constraints of that remote vessel, but autonomously by deriving the results and building an independent rocket lab and re-entry capability. How exciting is that? Will it expand industrial performance on Earth in this decade? And what will it mean for further space exploration in the next? Change is afoot, but science and space are still endless frontiers that might be a good thing, or we might get cocky. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. 
If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 29, The Automated Microfactory, episode 33, Sustainable Manufacturing at Scale, or episode 13, Get Manufacturing Superpowers. Here's Brian Matthews, CTO of Bright Machines, talking to me about the automated microfactory in episode 29. The automated uh, microfactory today is a set of modular Lego-like building blocks um, where you have standardized, already proven, already inventoried um, uh, devices that can do various process steps, but they're all under software control. So you design your line in software, you program your line in software, you simulate it, and you deploy it all through software. And then you can manage it. You can have IoT, get data back from that, um, and improve your next uh, revision of that. That's that's kind of what you can do today. I think you know tomorrow is where you get into the cloud, and you start bringing machine learning, and you get answers and insights from that, and you bring that data all the way back to the design phase. So you make a better design in the first place. And then I think the other part of this is instead of just having IoT report on how your machines are working, in the future we're going to make that bi-directional. The, the machine learning system is going to tweak the parameters of the temperatures and the torques and the pressures of the line dynamically in real time. Closed loop continuous improvement. Hopefully you'll find something awesome in these or other episodes. If so, do let us know by messaging us, and we would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. The Augmented Podcast is created in association with Tulip, connected frontline operations platform that connects the people, machines, devices, and the systems used in a production or logistics process in a physical location. Tulip is democratizing technology and empowering those closest to operations to solve problems. Tulip is also hiring. You can find Tulip at tulip.co. Please share this show with colleagues who care about where industry and especially industrial tech is heading. To find us on social media is easy. We are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. See you next time. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter.